And through Rumi, this idea that love is transformative, power to be harnessed, and also a knowledge to be comprehended. Love is also knowledge. Love is the highest knowledge. Um, this is the purpose of our life. This is the mysterium. This is the inner secret, uh, which if we neglect, we will have neglected the most important possibility of, of human life. It's a secret, it's a mysterion, yet it's infinitely close to us. And one way or another, this love is reaching out to us, but to consciously cooperate is a beautiful path. Welcome back to The Sounds of Sand. Today I'm in conversation with Kabir Helminski. Kabir is the co-director, along with his wife, Camille Helminski, of the Threshold Society, a nonprofit organization dedicated to sharing the knowledge and practice of Sufism. He is the author of Living Presence and the translator of four volumes of Rumi's poetry, including Love is a Stranger, and Rumi Daylight. And his new book, which we discuss on the podcast, is called The Mysterian, Rumi and the Secret of Becoming Fully Human. All today on The Sounds of Sand, presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Right, Kabir, welcome to Sounds of Sand. It's an honor to be with you today. Thank you, Michael. Very happy to be here. Yeah. So there's so many places I feel like we could begin to talk about your new marvelous book, The Mysterian, Rumi, and the Secret to Becoming Fully Human. But as a way to sort of orient our listeners, would you mind giving us a little bit of your story and your journey with Sufism? I've been a searcher for consciousness <clears throat> since an early age and when I was in university I majored in world religions and afterwards for several years my experience and my seeking was in traditions of the Far East and eventually after maybe 10 or 15 years I came to Sufism and to the tradition of Rumi and some of its living representatives. And that's when I felt I had truly come home. That all began in the late 70s. So, as I said, I was, I was a student of, of Buddhism particularly, and I had grown up as a Catholic, though by the time I was maybe 17 or 18 years old, I sort of left that behind. And from there, it was a slow process of meeting various teachers, getting acquainted with various traditions, until I came to Rumi's tradition. And it touched my heart very deeply. The way I explained it to myself, was that I had experienced teachings and teachers of copper, silver, other minerals. But when I came to Rumi's teachings, which were centered in love, love in a very cosmic sense, uh, it was as if I had come to the real gold that I was looking for. So that's just my experience, and, and when I say that, I say it with 
deepest respects for the other traditions that I learned from. I learned from the mindfulness of Buddhism. I learned from the oneness of Advaita. I learned something about Jesus early on. And all of these are <clears throat> beautiful, essential teachings. I have my utmost respect. But for me, Sufism was a very integrated spirituality. It was a spirituality that could be applied by people who are householders, people who have a profession, people who are taking a responsible place in society, and at the same time, seeking to experience the highest levels of spiritual attainment. Uh, and the way I understand that is that an enlightenment that would separate us from everyday life would not be a mature enlightenment. The ability to be aware of the highest dimension of truth, in other words, the divine in my language, uh, in the midst of everyday life represents an, an integration of, of spirituality with our embodied condition. So Sufism is a very embodied way of life. Our rituals are physical and vocal and interpersonal and communal and artistic and all of those things. So we, we stand and we bow and we prostrate. We chant the name of God aloud and silently and we cultivate community. So in short, <laughs> mm -hmm. that's how, how it seems to me. Yeah, and I, I feel so much, so much of that woven into your, your book too. Um, as you said, this integration that's present in Sufism, this welcoming of other world religions, other philosophies, other historical figures, teachers, and, and how that aligns with your own path, being, being raised Catholic and studying Buddhism. I, I feel that very deeply in your, in your book and, and the, um, the talks that I've listened to through Sand. Happy to hear that. <laughs> and it, uh, in another episode of our podcast, we explored the work of uh, Hazrat Inyat Khan, the, the mystic music practitioner from Sufism. And uh, something that really struck me from that conversation with um, this, this composer and um, Inayat Khan scholar Michael Harrison was this um, this dynamism, this movement. You know, so it's 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 the study of 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 sound and energy as a cosmology for the creation of the world. And you mentioned um, uh, movement and action and, and daily life and, and the ritual movement practices. And I know a lot of people associate Sufism with devotional whirling um, practice. Mm -hmm. uh, is that yes. a part of your, your practice as well? Well, that is our tradition, the tradition of the whirling dervishes, which uh, goes back to Rumi, although whirling uh, could be traced all the way back to shamanic activities in Central Asia and so forth. But the ceremonial whirling or, and whirling as a spiritual practice is at the heart of the Mevlevi tradition, which is our tradition, also known as the whirling dervishes. So we teach this and we do this and uh, we have led several tours of the United States and other countries as well with the whirling dervishes of Turkey. And uh, I stood in as sheikh in those ceremonies. And the beauty of the whirling ceremony is that it is fundamentally worship. And at the same time, it is an integration of a classical music tradition involving a number of uh, in instruments, strings and, and flute, you know, nay, 
flute with choral, vocal, singing, singing of usually poems of Rumi. And it is a symbolic cosmology in, well, the symbolism of it would, would, <laughs> would take the whole hour we have. So we won't go into that. But the dervishes are whirling and the sheikh is standing on a red sheepskin and the sheikh is holding the lineage's transmission, which goes back to Rumi and beyond Rumi to the prophets, including the prophet Muhammad. So while the sheikh is holding that transmission, the dervishes are whirling around an internal axis. They are bringing all of their attention into the silence of their own being because you can't have a internal dialogues while you're whirling, otherwise you won't be able to whirl. So part of the training of the whirling dervish is to silence the mind and open into a hyper-awareness, awareness of your own movements. And there's a very particular form and many aspects to be, be maintained for it to be balanced and beautiful. And awareness of the margins uh, between the other dervishes and even a choreography, because you're not only whirling around your own axis, you're also, uh, for parts of the ceremony, moving around the ceremonial space. And it has different movements, different parts. And in the end, it ends with the dervishes just, music stops and the dervishes are just whirling and all you can hear if you're close enough is the, is the swoosh of the robes and the feet on the floor. And suddenly a voice breaks in and it is a recitation of the Quran. And the, and the reciter might be reciting in Arabic, for instance, one of the most often used parts of the Quran says, to God belongs the East and the West, and wheresoever you turn is the face of God. So it's as if the whole ceremony has led up to that moment of being able to hear the revelation. Uh, and as if your heart has been emptied, your self or self has been purified, and all the dervishes suddenly kneel on their sheepskins to listen to that recitation of the Quran. So that's the ceremony that has been performed for about seven centuries. And as I said, it is primarily worship, which means a conscious reverence for the divine. And at the same time, it's art, it's ceremony, it's a communal uh, event. That's our tradition. And we do it in less formal ways as well. When we gather, sometimes it's very informal and we're singing Sufi Elahi's song, traditional songs, and, and reciting zikr, the names of God. And in such an informal situation, a dervish who is trained might just stand up spontaneously and begin to whirl in the midst of the gathering. So uh, that whirling is also has something to do with the vortex, the form of the vortex, which is a mysterious, profound, and powerful form within creation. And it generates an energy which is felt by anybody anywhere near it. When we had done ceremonies with as many as 2,000 people in the audience and performing arts venues, we would remind people not to offer applause at the end of the ceremony, but because 
we're, this is not a performance. You're not an audience. This is a ceremony and you're guests. So there's no reason to applaud. And people would sit in that silence and wouldn't even want to get up and leave for five minutes because of what they felt, which they might not have even understood or experienced before. But somebody who has spiritual sensitivity, of course, would, would recognize the beauty of it more consciously. And that's been part of the life of the Mevlevi tradition since Rumi's time. Although in Rumi's time it was very uh, exuberant and spontaneous, and the ceremonial side developed over the centuries into a really a beautiful culture of love and creativity. And during the Ottoman centuries, meaning up until the 1920s, the Mevlevi order, Mevlevi tradition, was a, a refuge for artistic and, and creative souls within that culture that stretched from North Africa all the way to India, basically. Now, a little bit about the Mevlevi tradition. Yeah. Well, I'm getting... Um... You know, I've never been. I've never seen whirling in in person before. I've seen videos of it, but it sounds, yeah, it sounds quite transcendent to witness. Um, as you say, it, it, it it's weaving spirituality and art, but also in some way science, because it's you know if you think about the, the structure of the universe, it's these these whirling microscopic particles uh, creating this intricate dance, and that that same model extends up. You know, to the planet and the ecosystems, and then the uh, the solar systems, and the way our galaxies are all in constant movement in that constant spiraling pattern. This is, and there's a secret in that. Not that I can explain it, but the fact that everything is turning, we should not take for granted. All of the planets are turning. All the galaxies are whirling, and at the you know, at the macrocosmic and microcosmic levels, there's something going on. And uh, it's as if, and some people would suggest, that this, this movement, this rotational movement, has something to do with manifestation, with bringing energies from what we might call the zero-point field into manifestation. And the human being is understood here as a transformer of subtle energies. This is one of the one act of service that we're capable of, and that the world needs these finer energies. Human beings need to experience them in order to be enriched by that experience, and it's vibrational, and it's a qualitatively beautiful energy. Yeah, of course. This um, this book, the Mysterion, the, the the subject and the muse, the the center of it is is Rumi, who you spoke of, and many people know Rumi's. Well, they see quotes from Rumi on social media and sort of excerpts of of his poems, or they may know complete poems. But um, in a shortened, capsulized version, who was he for you, and who was he uh, in terms of Sufism? Rumi is not unique in Sufism or in the Islamic tradition. 
Sufism being the mystical heart of the Islamic tradition. So he epitomizes something, but he's not new or original. Maybe what's original about him is the, the creativity with which he expresses the fundamental truths that have been part of Sufism. It's as if what was latent at the very beginning of the tradition with the revelation of the Quran, for instance, became, uh, it flourished and it became more explicit with Rumi as a message of love. And that message goes all the way back, you know, to, not only to the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad, but to Jesus and to all of the prophets, saints, and masters of, of humanity. And he just makes it very clear that the human being is capable of extraordinary creativity and a love that is beyond self-interest, a love that is transformative of the individual and of those uh, wherever that love is shared and expressed. So, actually, I think there's a poem that I can share with you that expresses it uh, beautifully. And the fact yes. that he expressed what he did uh, in poetry is part of its power, essential to its beauty. You could express these same truths in a more <clears throat> abstract and philosophical way, and some Sufis do that. But for Rumi, the, he used the language of the soul, and the language of the soul uses metaphor and imagery and story to express something that's beyond what the metaphor and imagery seems to represent. In other words, <clears throat> one definition of poetry is to say one thing and mean another. To really talk about <clears throat> spiritual realities, which are uh, not concrete, but are, are can be suggested through uh, themes like human love and even sensuality, Poetry becomes a way of referring to the unseen world, the, the, the spiritual world. And when I say unseen, yes, the manifest seen world is also an expression of that same reality. But if we live <clears throat> with the belief that only the material world is real, we are cut off from the dimensions of meaning out of which even the material concrete world manifests and flows. So here's a, here's a short poem. I think it epitomizes Rumi. My religion is to live through love, a life created from my own small mind and self would be a disgrace. The blade of love cuts away what covers the lover's soul. Love's sword severs sins. When the bodily grime is gone, a shining moon appears. Spirits moon in a wide open sky. I beat this drum of love for so long for you whom I adore singing, my life depends upon my dying. This keeps my body and soul alive. I dream that I do not sleep. This seagull fears no shipwreck. Her feet love to touch the ocean. Now, I realize this <laughs> is a lot to take in, especially just audibly without seeing the text. But let me just go through it and comment a little bit. Please, and, yeah. And, and sort of reveal how much is here and what the metaphysical background is of this. 
my religion is to live through love. Okay, that could be an Instagram post. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Who would argue with that? A life created from my own small mind and self would be a disgrace. In other words, life created from within the matrix of the ego leads to disgrace, leads to egoism, leads to, you know, all the vices and forms of unconsciousness we are all too familiar with, including in ourselves. Then he says, the blade of love cuts away what covers the lover's soul. So it's as if there's something that needs to be revealed, something that needs to be removed by the blade of love. But interesting, it's the blade of love. Hmm. Love's sword severs sins. Huh, that deserves some reflection. If we understood the nature of love, if we became proficient in practicing love, we would, might begin to see the relationship between so-called sin and lovelessness. And then he says, when the bodily grime is gone, a shining moon appears. Oh, the bodily grime. Now, Sufism doesn't have a negative attitude toward, towards the body. Uh, it honors the body. But preoccupation with the body, especially with its uh, unending appetites and often contradictory needs, um, that preoccupation is, uh, needs to fall away for something more essential, more spiritual to be revealed. So there is something to be revealed beyond our desires, our the thoughts and self-image our mind creates. He then says, spirits moon in a wide open sky. Okay, so an internal dimension opens and the moon, which is reflective, a reflective light, reflecting divine light, you could say, appears. And then he shifts again, he keeps shifting shifting references and uh, frameworks. He says, I beat this drum of love. Now for the Sufi, that's, you've heard that, we've heard that drum, we've beat that drum. It, it accompanies the zikr, the ch chanting of the remembrance of divine names. So I beat this drum of love for so long, for you whom I adore, in other words, this is all for that divine beloved. Singing, my life depends upon my dying. Huh. So the dying he's talking about is the dying that brings life. This keeps my body and soul alive. And he mentions body and soul. This vibrancy, this rhythm, this music of love, uh, and this dying away of the false self. This keeps my body and soul alive, although it looks like dying. And then he says, I dream, but I do not sleep. Hmm. Very interesting. A whole lecture could be come out of that one line. In sleep, one can be conscious, one can have conscious dreams. When the soul develops enough, when consciousness is sustained enough, then consciousness is continuous even into the dream state. So I dream, but I do not sleep. Then he says, again, sh shifting the context again, this seagull fears no shipwreck. So this is a reference to other poems and things that Rumi has said of his own experience, uh, <clears throat> that he is like a bird of the ocean. He's not a bird of the barnyard. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the seagull 
longs for the ocean, is not afraid of the ocean, fears no shipwreck. Her feet, this seagull's feet, love to touch the ocean. And of course, the ocean is the ocean of divine being. It is the whole. It is the whole. <laughs> it is the oneness. So there in a few short lines, my religion is to live through love. It's about the limitations of the false self. It's about what love cuts away. It's about what needs to be shed in order for uh, an inner light to appear. And it's also about the active you know, worship, the beating of that drum, that expression of the soul um, that enlivens us and connects us with the divine and keeps our body and soul alive. And the reminder that we don't need to fear this ocean. It's our home. I'll just continue to say something quickly. Rumi has this incredible gift for talking about these universal truths, but always in memorable, unique ways, sometimes in ways that even a child could understand. And yet the concepts are profound and far-reaching. No, that's so true. Thank you for Yeah, and what, well, two things came to mind. One is you were talking about the different shifting of symbols you know, from from the sword to the um, seagull, all all as a continuous metaphor, and and it was very it was very dreamlike. It's very surreal um, in, in the way it's presented. And another thing, which I, I know you mentioned a few times in your book, is the sort of holographic nature of these poems. Mm -hmm. That each stanza, each word, you know, is a portal. And like you said, a whole lecture could be created just talking about the seagull's feet touching the infinite ocean of, of being, you know, that's, that's a whole, a journey you could go on. Yes. Um, and so, um, picking one of those holographic portals, uh, to talk about, uh, I wonder if we could talk more about love because that's a, a word, obviously in English, we have one word, which means many different things for many different people. Um, even if we think about the love that we have for another person that, definition changes of how we're feeling in the moment. Sometimes it's romantic, sometimes it's sensual, sometimes it's caring, sometimes it's this, this sort of universal spiritual love. Um, and you have a quote in your book, which I, I highlighted, um, one of the many highlights is, uh, love loves to make itself known to us and itself is capitalized as a divine love. So yeah, I was just wondering if you could speak more about this concept of love and as it relates to Rumi and Sufism. Yes. Well, <clears throat> for, for Rumi and for all Sufis, I would say love is so much more than an emotion or a human state. It's the very nature of reality. Mm. So reality has two dimensions. <laughs> I mean, put very simply, one is the outer dimension of manifest life, the material world. The other dimension is the dimension of meaning and significance, which we know subjectively through our own experience. So the fact that you and I exist and experience what we experience in the way of consciousness and love and other qualitative experiences is suggestive that these experiences such as compassion, empathy, love, etc. are of the very nature of reality and not just accidents of our material physiology or electrochemical you know, organism. That compassion a nurturing compassion is the divine nature. And this is the truth. This is the highest truth. And it's, it's proven in our own experience because if we ask any uh, 
human being, any non-psychopathic human being at least, what is truly of value, we'll find that what is truly of value in all of life is not any material possessions or even any material circumstances, but our inner experience of love, family, friendship, beauty, creativity, um, and so forth. So love is the highest expression of meaning and the most transformative power in existence. So what Rumi is is doing and what he did in his life was to use love at, as a transformative power because he himself was transformed by it through his meeting with his friend and mentor Shamsi Tabriz. And through Rumi this idea that love is transformative and the power to be harnessed and also a knowledge to be comprehended. Love is also knowledge. Love is the highest knowledge. Um, this is the purpose of our life. This is the mysterium. This is the inner secret, uh, which if we neglect, we will have neglected the most important possibility of, of human life. It's a secret, it's a mysterion, yet it's infinitely close to us. And one way or another, this love is reaching out to us, but to consciously cooperate with it is a beautiful path, is realizing our human destiny. It's fulfilling the purpose of being human. So there is a purpose implied in this, that there's no greater knowledge, no greater experience than the experience of this love. So Rumi believed, bring it down to earth, Rumi believed that every manifestation of love is, should be cultivated, should be nurtured, but with the understanding that every form of love is a stepping stone to other levels, other, you know, stages of love. So even uh, sensuality, love of the lovable, mm -hmm. um, the love of beauty, including sexuality, uh, this is all beautiful when it's, uh, when it is love <laughs> and not exploitation or perversion or whatever. Um, that every form of human love is a stepping stone leading us stage by stage to ever wider fields of love and without denying the earlier stages without denying the beauty of, of romantic love and partnership and marriage and, and family but increasingly love becomes more and more subtle more and more pervasive, more and more universal. And in the end, he would say, the greatest love is love with no object. When the human being gets to that stage, he or she has become love and simply radiates love. It's no longer a love that needs to possess. Uh, it's no longer a love that depends on only the objects of love, because the objects of love can go. Loved ones die, or, as we know, sometimes love fails, or we fail to be responsible to, enough to nurture our, all of our loving relationships. So the objects of love come and go. But through spiritual realization, spiritual practice, the development of consciousness and harmony with love, we can reach a state where the human being has become that love 
through which he or she was created and is fulfilling the purpose of life and therefore becomes just uh, uh, capable of radiating love into our environment. Mm. So I think in a, in a nutshell, if that was a nutshell, maybe more <laughs> than a nutshell, uh, this is the journey, this is the heart of the matter, and everything can be viewed from this perspective. And the human heart itself is an organ for perception of this dimension of reality. So purifying the heart of egoism, um, which would corrupt the heart and limit its perception, limit its embrace of life, um, this is also the journey. So the science of the purification of the heart is part of the deal. places to go um, so when you speak about well, when Rumi and, and you uh, speak about this greatest love so this universal love the, the sort of source love of all other versions of love it's almost like uh, yeah it's almost like other manifestations romantic love sensual love love of peanut butter whatever it is are modulations they're sort of um, frequency modulations of that pure mm -hmm. that pure source and another another way we think about love or um, another manifestation of love is attention right attention and awareness and presence which you speak about in your book yes yeah. uh, right so attention is a really fundamental human attribute and spirituality can be viewed as uh, the training of our attention and morality can be understood as uh, knowing where and how to direct our attention mm. and for most people for most of us much of the time we're not uh, we're not in control of our attention our attention goes out to whatever is loudest in the environment, whatever draws our attention. And there's a whole, there are industries that exist only to steal our attention and command our attention. So to become, to learn, uh, to bring attention under our own, the control, the direction of our will and our love uh, is one essential way of looking at spiritual training and learning to keep our intention, learning to have a spiritual intention in our lives, in other words, a, a being conscious of a spiritual compass within ourselves is, is so important. So this book, The Mysterian, also addresses this. The Mysterian is that secret within the human being, which if we neglect, the very purpose of our life will be um, incomplete. 
and yet if we could live with conscious awareness that at the heart of our human being is this portal to the divine and that the divine uh, is always longing itself to direct us, guide us, nurture us, strengthen us. Um, that's the mysterium, that's the portal to be opened. That is what will give us a, a truly rich life, a life that will not be wasted, a life that will be of value not only to ourselves but to others. So attention is a key factor. And in any spiritual tradition, you'll find many examples of how attention is trained. And uh, on the one hand, you can train it through hours and hours of sitting meditation. And that's beautiful, important to experience. But then how does that carry over into our everyday life? How do we become, live with presence? And by presence, I mean something very specific. And I wrote another book called Living Presence. Let me define how we understand presence, because it is a, you know, it's a slippery, beautiful, but slippery term. <laughs> Imagine a comprehensive state of awareness, though rarely experienced, a comprehensive state of awareness that can encompass our thinking, our emotions, our behavior, our sense impressions, can encompass and hold all of those in a single field of awareness. Unlike our ordinary state, where some of us are just living in our thoughts, living in our heads, and some people are just in their emotions and maybe agitated by their emotions, and others are completely preoccupied with their bodies, you know, Am I well fed? Am I, you know, satisfied? Am I too hot, too cold? Imagine a comprehensive state of awareness that can encompass all of that. It's more than, I would say, more than mindfulness, although if this is what one means by mindfulness, bravo, this is how we understand presence. Presence is the beginning of that conscious relationship with the infinite with the divine, with the realm of oneness. And when we're in a state of presence, we are more available to uh, the, let's call it the universal intelligence, which is another synonym <laughs> for the divine, uh, because this total oneness, this reality is profoundly intelligent at the same time that it's profoundly loving. So, when we're not in a state of presence, when we're just in our thoughts or feelings, or in our, just in our bodies, in the lower sense of being in our bodies, yes, that divine may reach us occasionally. It may break through <laughs> all of those layers of conditioning and preoccupation and illusion and negativity, etc. Yes, the divine can break through that. But if we could live in a state of more continual presence, open-hearted, openly aware, our attention not coerced, not controlled, but a free attention, an attention that's able to listen, able to listen within, able to also be aware outwardly, then the world of meaning can enter into us. And when I say the world of meaning, I don't mean just any meaning. I don't mean all meanings, but, but the meaning that is most um, beautiful and essential, the guidance that comes from that universal intelligence. And when we move beyond the egoist, the matrix of egoism, we get out of that prison, we step out of that prison into presence, then we're in an open field where a greater intelligence and love can reach us, guide us, and we can cooperate with it 
and enjoy it and share it. Something like that. Yeah, it's almost like the 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 meaning inside of us. You know, you talked about recognizing is is looking to recognize the meaning that's out there, and that happens through that presence that you're talking about, that listening, that that yeah. cultivation of of silence, that inner silence that's able to make the space for silence itself to be heard by the silence. Yes, yes. And by the way, I want to mention a, a sand talk from years ago that was extremely valuable to me. And, and uh, it was a talk by Federico Fagan okay. on uh, artificial and human intelligence. I don't know if that was the title. It was a short talk, 15 or 20 minutes. Frederico was the inventor of the microchip in 1971. And he gave the most profound talk about the difference between artificial intelligence and human intelligence. And I had to listen to that talk and take notes on it and listen to it several times to decipher it because he packed so much in scientifically. Mm -hmm. He gives a scientific explanation for the difference between two realms of being. I hope I can explain this uh, without belaboring it or making it too complex, but it's so essential to what we're talking about. I'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can find it when they download this Good. episode. Yeah, please yeah. do. <laughs> uh, so to put it as simply as I can, the what he, he describes two dimensions. One he calls semantic, and the other is symbolic. The semantic dimension is the dimension of human will and consciousness and meaning <clears throat> and attention. And the symbolic dimension are all the ways in which that is expressed. Or, for example, he mentioned that you could express all of quantum physics in six equations, mathematical equations. He said, but that's a symbolic expression. And yet it's in a sense meaningless, meaningless without the human dimension of meaning that discovered it. Mm -hmm. So he separates these two realms and he says that artificial intelligence can learn and calculate and perform these functions that it has been engineered to perform, but it never can, it will never have will. It will never have that power of attention and intention. And also let's say feeling, including love, that the human dimension has. So the semantic dimension of life is always there simultaneously with the outer symbolic expression, symbolic meaning, uh, for instance, uh, Michael, you have a perhaps a social security number that's identified with you. That's a symbolic expression of you in one form. It has something to do with you, but it's not you. <laughs> and so we have to distinguish these two realms. And one, uh, I actually, in one of the talks that I gave at Sand, I described how there are two different sciences and physical science is always working with measurement and mathematics. It is looking at the symbolic reality but it doesn't really touch the internal dimension, which is qualitative, qualitative in the sense of what, you know, what your, what your heart feels to be valuable. Right. What does love feel like? What does generosity feel like? What does forgiveness feel like? These things are not, they don't, that doesn't exist in the symbolic, but in the semantic dimension of reality. So I said, there's a science of the heart uh, which is different than the science, than material science. And 
with the science of the heart, well, the primary instrument of that science is the heart or, or human consciousness. And that we should not confuse even the marvelous findings of science that seem to suggest a mystical truth and do, and they, they befuddle the mind. But there is this reality that is only known internally through human consciousness. And Michael Fagan makes a good case of how this is a priori, this dimension of consciousness, which is qualitative, is <clears throat> uh, intrinsic to this experience of life, of consciousness. Mm. So I highly recommend his talk in light of all the issues that are coming up in the world today yeah. with chatbot and all right. this other <laughs> stuff, which seems to mimic, it, it's a symbolic representation. Chatbot is a purely symbolic representation of the symbolic reality. And chatbot, as you know, so, okay, if we go into chatbot a little bit? I yeah, I was actually going to, I was going to ask about that, actually, because I, I feel like chatbot, you know, if you can look at a bright side of it, perhaps if we offload some more of this, this semantic uh, workload of our brains, it'll make some space for us to experience more of the meaning and being and the qualitative underlying essence of, of interacting with one another. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what chatbot does is you ask it a question and it goes out into all of human discourse that has appeared on the internet. That's not all of human discourse, just the part of it that appears on the internet, the people who are engaged in that way. And also the totality of human consciousnesses, well, not consciousness, but the totality of human thought and discourse, much of which, by the way, is programmed, propagandized, is a result of mind control of forces that have nothing to do with reality right. or, or the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm -hmm. So the chatbot goes out in that whole ocean of, <laughs> uh, of discourse, let's say, and then it formulates an answer based on, is it based on truth or is it based on the sum totality of egoistic experience on the planet at, at this time. Yeah. So it's not a reliable uh, view of reality, of truth. In fact, if you take all the opinions in the world and sum them up, in, but give them a, a, you might say, make them more articulate and intelligible, still you only have a summation of that human nonsense, if I may say so. And uh, maybe you could, if you ask the right question, you might get a better answer. But you can ask chatbot, are you conscious? And it'll give you one answer. And if you ask chatbot, are you merely machine and unconscious? It'll also give you a very good reason why it, that's true. Mm. So we have to get beyond this mechanical thinking, this, this uh, being lost in the realm of, sim of opinion, of this, this merely symbolic realm, which in this case is, uh, you know, made up of a lot of what major media is telling us, for instance, and who wants to trust that or who finds any truth in that. Yeah. And how do we turn into, how do we turn our consciousness and our attention towards that which is most true and beautiful in the semantic dimension of reality? And that's what Rumi and prophets and spiritual masters ideally point us to. Mm. Though even those traditions also have a certain amount of nonsense mixed into them because they're human and imperfect and somewhat conditioned no matter what. But nevertheless, it's in that direction that we're more likely to find an adequate representation of reality and the purpose of human life. Nice, yeah. I feel like we have a whole separate conversation about <laughs> chatbot and the, the ramifications of that. And 
Um, it's something we've been talking a lot about at Sand. You know, like how do we how do we use these technologies, but use them in a in a way that, like I said earlier, can alleviate some of the chaos of the mind to say, okay, let the chatbot write the marketing email, you know, and we can focus on other things. Um, but to not, in the episode, um, in the podcast I did with Ellen Emmett, um, we, we talked about this quite a bit too, that our culture just has an obsession with uh, intellectualism, with intellectual property. And I think we're in a stage where we're very, really enamored that, that this technology can um, synthesize, you know, lyrics to a song or synthesize essays for for students and things like that and um, I think it's just a it's a symptom of our of our current obsession in the West with with brains and thoughts and the fact that we can we we call such a thing artificial intelligence that doesn't have a body you know it's completely ignoring all the intelligence of the body it's you know it's just replicating replicating words you know it's just it's just imitating basically yes when you say it's ignoring the body what it's really ignoring in one sense it's not ignoring the body because it will still have uh, propositions about the body but what it's ignoring is the felt subjective experience of life yeah i meant i meant to say maybe bodily intelligence so you know where my next sentence comes from some of it's my brain but some of it's my gut bacteria some of it's energetic systems in my body and my emotions that say, okay, maybe this is the next thing to say. It's not just a mechanized process happening from the neurons in my brain. Mm -hmm. I know you didn't mean that, but yes, I just (laughs) wanted to clarify it a little bit. So it would be a great, shall we say, practice for us if we could learn to listen deeply within, to carry our consciousness back, 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 behind our thoughts, behind our emotions and feelings, and take it all the way as back as we can go to that place of silence and stillness and listen from there and and listen in this sense that we're listening for guidance, for wisdom, for meaning. Is there anything there? This would be an interesting experiment. Mm-hmm. And what effect does that have if we were to regularly practice that deep 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 listening and then in that state thoughts words might arise and we might learn to distinguish where are these thoughts rising from they're rising from you know something that i heard on television recently or might it be something much much deeper might it be something from a deeper intelligence uh, and I think this is what meditation could be and contemplation maybe is a better word for it and that we need that deeper guidance Mm. and we may learn to trust that we we can refer to something within our hearts that we can rely on uh, more reliably than other levels of information and opinion that are thrown at us all the time and we would get back to our own essence and we would find you know what we talk about in sufism as our intimacy with the divine that we are made to know this intimacy and that our experience of self can be imbued with the qualities of the divine, which is not the same as saying I am God, or even quite the same as saying God is within me, but is saying that there's a profound intimate relationship between the whole and this one individualized consciousness, this one I that is you or me, but that I, we can experience that I-ness uh, in a beautiful in- intimacy, a divine friendship. Mm. And that we can learn to rely and trust, uh, trust this relationship. This is what we would call faith. Faith is not belief. It's not a theology. Faith is knowing we live in a spiritual reality and uh, learning to 
invoke it, trust it, be guided by it, after we clear away some of our egoistic distortions. Beautiful. I feel like that's a beautiful place to leave it today. Mm. That was nice. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. So the new book, Mysterian, uh, will be out when, once this episode is out, and I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a beautiful journey through the poetry of Rumi and the philosophies of Sufism, and it's it's also very accessible. I feel it's very pertinent to our times. It, some of it feels like it could have been written, you know, hundreds of years ago because it has this timeless wisdom about it, but it also has very important messages about our current state of affairs. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how it's received by the world. Um, and anything else um, coming up that you'd like to share about any kind of retreats or online or in-person offerings? Thank you for asking, uh, Michael. We're, we're, you can find our work at sufism.org, S-U-F-I-S-M.org. And uh, so I would refer you there. And whatever we're doing will be we'll mentioned there. Right now we're in the midst of a, a year-long project called the Mysterian School. We're in our second or third month of that school, and it goes for a year. It's still possible to join in and participate in that. It's a once a month uh, live session and with some discussion sessions happening in between those. And it's also the materials will all be archived, and you'll find reference to that at sufism.org and our other activities and retreats that will come up in primarily in, in England in the summer and uh, probably in California in the fall. So thank you for hosting and for inviting me to uh, participate in this. I'm very happy to reconnect with Sand. And, uh, thank you. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.